0: Hi, this is Kev Legs Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to say I'm now joined on the phone all the way from the US of A by Mr. Chris Bad News Barnes. Chris, are you well? I am well, thank you, Kevin. How are you? I'm I'm fine, thank you, but... uh, can I make a polite request? Please don't call me Kevin. <laughs> My yeah, mother called I, me I, that I, when I did something wrong. As soon as I said it, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I felt domineering as I said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, first question is got to be, why bad news? Well, uh, here in America, we
1: have, um, there was a a professional basketball player uh, who played for the, the Celtics, the Boston Celtics, and his nickname was Bad News Barnes. His, his entire name was Marvin Bad News Barnes. And my father's name was Marvin Barnes. So when we were kids growing up, uh, the neighborhood kids, uh, you know, and we were all problem, we were, we were all problem childs. Um, I they they gleaned that uh, that Nick they put that moniker on me Chris Bad Marvin Barnes because at first they would call me Little Marv Marv's Boy Little Marv and then it became uh, when when everybody got hip to Marvin Bad News Barnes the basketball player then I got the Bad News moniker right now many people think it's because of the movie the Bad News Bears because the actor is Chris Barnes. And they think it's that, and it's not. Everybody thinks I was the actor in the movie, and I'm not. I know him, um, but um, no, it it has to do with the basketball player, Bad News Barnes, who was a problem basketball player, and um, he had a rough life. There's a great book about him, and um, very interesting character. And I I believe all bluesmen should have a handle. I don't think, you know, unless you have a handle, I don't know, man. You know, I question your blues... Genealogy. Yeah, you know, I mean, you got to have a hound dog tail, or you got to have a howling wolf. You need a handle, my brothers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily mine is legs, so there we go. Um, there you go. <laughs> have legs. You have appeared on various things: Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and many, many other things. But let's go right back to the start. Did you grow up in a musical environment? Yes.
1: I, uh, at, at the age of five, started drum classes. I, I studied drum, and I took lessons. And um, I would, my father had a diner in the downtown part of, I'm from Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is Joe Biden's hometown, Scranton, PA. And in downtown Scranton, my father had a little diner, and we all worked there, and I washed dishes there. And next door was a music store where they sold music, but they also had instructions. And I was banging on pots and pans in the, in the diner all the time. And my father said, that sounds horrible. Start taking some lessons, so at least it sounds better in here. And I took lessons uh, at the neighborhood, you know, at the downtown music studio. And another artist uh, named Clarence Spady, uh, who has an album out right now, and a hit song, Surrender, Clarence was taking music classes there as well. Uh, Honestly, God, uh, within a, a few years, you know, we were, we were in a band playing, uh, playing in, in, in pubs. And by the time we were 12 years old, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah I, I, uh, my, my, my personal family, I had three sisters that were Rockettes. They were dancers. So dance was a big thing, but musically I got into the drums. I like to bang things. And, uh, and, and I started very early and, and, and really, got, really got into actual gigging and, and performing
0: at a very young age. So what were you listening to in those days?
1: Well, you know, um, the, the, the first show uh, we did was at my grade school in second grade. And here was the song list. Here was the, the three-song running order. The theme song from Batman, the TV show, <laughs> da 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 <laughs> Batman. The Herman Hermits, it's a kind of hush, and "Twist and Shout" from the Beatles. That was those were the first three songs when, uh, you know, at the age of nine and ten. So that's not bad. That's not a bad, not a bad running order. No. Uh, and then um, I went when I when I was seventeen. I moved to New York City, and I was uh, doing stand-up comedy, and I was. Performing at a place called Tramps, uh, which was on Fifteenth Street in New York City, and I was the MC, and they were doing all blues. So I was MC and introducing Coco Taylor, Pine Top Perkins, Blind John Davis. So that's where I really most, and most Allison, as a matter of fact. So I mean, I was so that's I was seventeen and getting hit with, to this date, the greatest blues artist ever.
0: Well, it was while you were at Tramps that. What you used to do, if my information is correct, you would take audience suggestions and improvise the blues tunes.
1: That's correct. I would say, give me a, a woman's first name, uh, Brenda, and give me a household object like a spatula or a knife or a spoon. You know, and, oh, spoon. So I would have Brenda and spoon, and then I would just do a 12 bar blues, make a song da 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 her name was Brenda, da-da-da-da-da, got money from her lender. da-da-da-da-da, she had a spoon, da-da-da-da-da, you knew this tune, da-da-da-da, and just improvise on and on and on, and at that point, the band would come on stage so that there would be no dead air between the comedy and the, and the artist, and they would start playing along with me, and then I would end that song, and while the applause, I would say. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the drummer would start with the beat. Please welcome from the South Side of Chicago, the queen of the blues, Coco Taylor. And that's what I did, man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, later I would find out that in my research, that, they used to, that that's what the hokum blues artists used to do. Uh, W.C. Handy is quoted as saying, we used to hook them with the hokum. We always had a comedic blues act before the main act. And that's who held the audience for the people to stay and watch the blues act. So that was my that was a natural progression for me. You know, and it was it was it was Big Eyes Willie Smith who told me that. He said, Man, you know what you're doing? You're doing what we used to call Hokum Blues. You're a Hokum blues cat. And I was like, Okay. I've been I've been knighted. I've been I've been given my direction by the sage.
0: You said that when you started out you wanted to be a drummer. Well, then you moved into comedy and then managed to combine that with music. Correct. Did you want to go one way or the other, or did you always have an idea of maybe combining the two?
1: I never, you know, to me, I never, and to this day, I don't see any difference between an entertainer. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't, I mean, if you're, I I, I think I'm more of the field of a performer, entertainer, and underneath that, the the subgenres are comedian musician singer but um you know you're just a perf- you're just a performer to me it's a different head i don't see any difference i see i i think you i you know i think you have to be versed you know in and, and both and and i see that all the time you know i'm going to name drop here um richard starkey ringo uh ringo Starr I was having coffee with him once and he said to me so I understand, you know, you're a comedian. I said, well, yes, but you know, all comedians want to be musicians, and all musicians. And he stopped me and said, are comedians? <laughs> and um, I believe that, you know, I, I, I think you have to have. I, think, I don't. You don't have to do anything. But for me, I had to do both. Yes, I had to incorporate uh, both. I've done. I've done the the most volume of my com- comedy is improvisation with the Second City Company and being on television with Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, all those shows. But I've, I've, always, I've, al, I've, I've also done National Lampoon, um, uh, mock rock comedy specials. Uh, there's a, there was a, a show that John Belushi did called Lemmings that was a National Lampoon, and that was, that was a parody of Woodstock. So I've always produced, written, and directed shows that were comedy and music, and still look at that kind of arena for future venues and, and future shows. The great thing was the blues had a genre that, exact, that exactly did represent both, and that being Holcomb blues.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's described as a great American art form, but it's probably an art form that a lot of people, particularly over here in the UK, are unfamiliar with. So, yes. Do you see it as your goal or raison d'être, for want of a better phrase, to try and raise the profile of it?
1: Absolutely, that is my that is my, you know, that is my mission of from God, if, if I was to quote John Belushi. You know, um, that is that is exactly what I do, and you know, I was talking, you know, with Rick Booth from Intrepid Artists, who's handling me now with, with bookings. And, you know, he was saying, you know, this is this is a really a great thing. This is a really great opportunity to have a mission like this. So it's you know, you are trying to promote something. You are trying to bring something to the to to the stage. And, you know, we're having a discussion about that. And and what are some of the ways that we can do that? And I said, you know, one of the things I have started doing when I perform is uh, performing a big 10 inch, which is, you know, everybody knows from Aerosmith, Mm. big 10 inch and but the truth is it's it's a it's a bull moose jackson hokum song yeah so when i when i when i do that early in the set people go oh i get it <laughs> no it's a it's a it's an easier leap of understanding what the music is this was a song written in the 30s uh that is satirical and re-recorded by Aerosmith and you all know it and then they go oh i love it okay so it's blues with funny lyrics you know you know which which is uh, what it is. Uh, yes, that is, that is the goal, is to uh, remain a hokum artist and bring hokum uh, to the fore. As a matter of fact, I was just uh, talking to uh, uh, there's a, a, a singer here, Catherine Russell. She's a very uh, popular jazz singer, Lincoln Center, and um, I'm talking to her about actually trying to do a Lincoln Center show thematically about Hokum blues because they're open to that kind of uh format where the show is kind of uh, educational as well as entertaining uh steve miller from the steve miller band he performs there once a year and does stuff like that he'll do uh he'll do like he'll do a show called texas versus chicago blues and they'll talk about the songs in between songs and the nature he just did one with charlie Musselwhite, and that's what they did they perform and then after a song they would discuss you know who really wrote that song? Was that Willie Dixon? How did it move from How did it move from Clarksdale to Chicago? And that's exactly what I want to do: be an ambassador for this style of music that's so important and uh, has such great songs. And you know the, the, you know one of the songs is "It Hurts Me Too," which if you were to listen to Bluesville Radio in a week, you could hear at least twelve different versions of that. Right now, there's, there's, there's about five hot versions. Fod Hat has a version of it. And that is, that's a Tampa Red song. That's a 1930s Hoke and Blues song, even though it's not that satirical or that uh, blue. You know, it, it's, But that's a, that's a classic, classic blues song, and that is from a Hokum and Blues artist.
0: You were saying that once you'd been introduced to Hokum and Blues, you, you did your research and you've mentioned that some of the songs date back to the 1930s or even before then. We have a feature on the show called the Analog Blues Track where we play jug bands and bands like that from the 1920s, 1930s. And right. it, it's a, a sort of satirical look on the world, but it, it's also informative. It's telling how black people were treated back in those days
1: absolutely you know i'm from the second city comedy troupe in in uh, chicago and you know you are really sat down and educated and trained in what the purpose of comedia really is you know and and one of the main through lines that we are taught is that every time a new law is put into order even today it is the comedian's job to to observe and challenge that that law what is that about how does that affect me so the the comedian is really uh you know is really trying to put back into the public what's going on in a subversive t- type kind of way so that's you know um the song I did uh, on the album uh, you want to rock you got to learn the blues you know I've I've now live on stage at the end of the song instead of while saying who the band members are, I'm also pointing out devastations historically of the white culture demoralizing the black culture, the riots, Tulsa, Chicago, Detroit. And that's uh, that's a very important part of, of the hokum and a very important part of comedy, no matter what. Even if you went back to the early Greek, and and uh, you know, if you look at Dada in the 30s, if you look at uh berlin in the 30s the comedia was always challenging you know i mean comedians and and germany in the 30s were getting killed because they were they were pointing out hitler's faults you know her, you know in the in the dev the devastation so that is a very very important part of the hulk and blues and that's why to me it's not something to be written off and it's something and and for that reason that is the is the exact importance Of why I want to do it and continue it. It is what allows me to do both. It is what allows me to have a voice that's more than just doing a 12-bar blues song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very important. Uh, It's it's even more important now to have that voice. And that was a big problem with this album, Kev. Is you know uh, everybody was like, "Are you sure? Like this is the worst time to be controversial." And I said, "It's the best time to be controversial." And this, it's, it's more important now, uh, to do satire and to hold a mirror to power. And, uh, this is the challenge. I, I was, you know, this, this is what I, this is, you know, this is the Super Bowl of, of, you know, of comedia to me. This is the exact time to step up. That's, and I was very excited about that. That was, that was giving me an extra push because there's defiance in this, you know, there has to be. And especially in the blues community, you know, there's a real riff. There's a real rift between um, uh, the right and the left. And uh, that's what the song "I like Cleavage I wrote is about, you know. and uh, and I think that that was a very good, clever, witty, uh, totally esque with the with the salaciousness of it. Uh, so, you know, as an artist and as a writer, the terms and the causes and conditions that we find ourselves in is what actually inspires and allows me to uh, explode on a theme or, or a political social idea, and then and then funnel it through a Hokum Blues arrangement.
0: In your recordings, there was Hokum Blues, which was an out-and-out tribute to the Hokum Boys, Tampa Red, and Georgia Tom. Yes. Um, then there was the live album, which was recorded on the Blues Cruise. Yes. And then there's the most recent release, Bad News Rising, which, again, uh, you're keeping that Hokum tradition going.
1: Yes, and this is my first all original album. As you said, um, what happened was is I I did an album before I, I signed with Biz Tone Records, and it was uh, 90 Proof Truth, and there was I did like three or four comedic satiric songs. And then, you know, we talked about going to Memphis um, where two times a year we have the international blues challenge and we have the blues music awards. And when you're there, you're, not only are you meeting the cream of the crop of artistry and whatnot, but you're also meeting the industry cats. You're meeting the bill wax, the radio giants. You're meeting the Bob Porter producer, uh, historian of, of blues music in general. And I was actually having lunch with Bill Wax and Bob Porter at, you know, a barbecue joint, you know, on Beale Street. And they were the ones that advised me. I just had the discussion you and I had just had. And I said, What is your what what is what do you think I should do? And um, actually I didn't say what do you think I should do. They told me what they think I should do without me asking. And they said you should start with songs from the Hokum Boys, Georgia Tom, Tampa Red start there, do 10, 12 of, of the cover, their songs and reintroduce those cats to the blues community and in, in current time and start there. And that's exactly what I did. And that did lay the foundation. And that album, uh, which was done with Jimmy Vivino from the Conan band, Will Lee from the Letterman band, Beth Sussman, who played with Whitney Houston and Steve Geiger play with Jimmy Rogers on harmonica. That was that was the, 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 that was the start. And then when I was on the Legendary Rhythm and Blues cruise, Tony Bronigal from Taj Mahal's band, the drummer, who's also a producer, uh, we said, why don't we try to capture this? Uh, because I was also getting in a little confused with, as you pointed out before, kind of the jug band style. People are going, oh, are you a jug band? It's like, no, I'm not a jug band. So I wanted to get a live sound for people to identify what I sound like live. And it's a very high energy blues show. And then it was time to do an original album, which is what I've been working towards. Um, set the groundwork, displayed what it, what it would look like, sound like live. And now it was time to give, you, give the audience my personal Chris Barnes take on modern culture, Holcomb blues. And to do that, I musically wanted to get the best producer I could, and that's when I went to Tom Hambridge down in Nashville.
0: And you've also got some top-name musicians appearing on this one. You've got Kevin McKendry, Tommy McDonald, Pat Buchanan. The songs that are on this album, were they sitting around for some time, or did you write them specifically for this album?
1: I told, I, you know, I, I, said to, I said to Tom, what do I do here? Do I bring my... Do I bring musicians that I work with? Uh, And he said, no. He goes, I got my own guys. You walk in, you know, the charts will be ready. And uh, these guys are, you know, these guys are my team. And that's the way they do it in Nashville. You know, you go to certain cities and you go, oh, okay. Here is where they do Broadway shows. You go to other cities, you go, oh, this is where they make movies. You go to Nashville and and you go, oh, this is where they write songs and record songs. And uh, he had his team... They speak their own language, and when they get into a groove, it's almost impossible to get out of it. So it was really great. As I was walking in, Kev Moe was walking out. A week before that, it was Tommy Castro. Yeah, I, and I really enjoyed that because these guys, you know, I'm a, a Second City ensemble player, so I know how powerful uh, it is when you're working with people that, that, you're on, that you work with daily and you can read each other. And and you can hear it on the album. It, it's magnificent.
0: Yeah, I was saying, had the songs been lying around, but I suppose if you're doing contemporary satire, they've got to be written of the moment. Yes. So did did yes. you write them before you went to Nashville, or did stuff in Nashville inspire you? Well,
1: you know, because with, with 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 you know, this was done at the at the peak of COVID, so it was very very difficult. So what I did was is I, I, I wrote out, you know, I wrote every song out uh, lyrically and would say to and then and and we were doing Zoom conferences, Tom and I. And then I would send him the lyrics, you know, by email. And I would say, you know, this is kind of a slow blues, but, you know, whatever you think it should be. This is I see this as a back porch, you know, acoustic slide guitar song, whatever, but then, you know, and, and then he would either agree or not, or, or say, I have something. Let me, let me, let me try this on you. And that would happen right in the studio. A lot, you know, a lot. I, I never heard any of the music till the day I showed up. And so, and again, with it being COVID, you know, I flew in, checked into the hotel and not eight o'clock the next morning was in the studio. And we did 12 songs musically in one day, and then two days of vocals of my vocals. So, um, I I I did not, you know, write in Nashville, but that is exactly what's going to happen this time. I just got off the phone with Tom. And I said, "I want to come down early. I want to spend 2 weeks with you with, you know, before we go into the studio." And he was like, "Absolutely." So, that is that is the uh that is the the blueprint for the next album. And I and I said that to Tom. I said, "You know, you know, we're just, obviously we're just scratching the surface here. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, and look what we did. I said, exactly. So very excited about the next one. And, um, and I'm sonically as a you know, finding where, where I fit in, what, what work what is working for me. Uh, and, and that's fun too, you know, to hear, to hear the groove that kind of is, is speaking to me at the same time because I don't write the music you know i'm not a I, I i don't read music and i don't write it i know what the feel is that, that i'm working with as i'm writing something but i don't i don't know the notes or the chords for that so so that's a, a, a huge learning curve for me even now
0: so you're already looking towards the next album is this yes. the way you work or is this stuff that's been bottled up because of covid
1: well the 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 cold the last album was was totally bottled up. But now it's like now it's just like, you know, what happens is, Kev, is, is I'll be doing something and and a a a hook'll come to me and I'll go, Great, and I'll get the phone, I'll either say it into the voice recorder or I'll type it on my notes in the phone and then I let it go because I know exactly where I know I know exactly what the premise is, but I'm not gonna start I'm not going to start writing the scene yet. You know, there's a a Jerry Seinfeld has a great book and he said, you know, a great joke is really a well-written short song. And that's exactly what I do. And once I have the premise, I'm not going to, I'm going to let it go. And then, and then I load them all up and now I've got 12 to 15 of those premises. And then I go into a full 30 day 10 at night till four in the morning Banging those out structurally, because yeah. I know I, I need to get back in that premise to to explore, heighten, intensify and exaggerate. And that's exactly my formula. Explore, heighten, intensify and then exaggerate. And that's how I write a, a Holcomb song.
0: Well, in the, the notes they've got, you say that all the songs are original and you like to use satire. But there's also some biographical pieces in there, like when Coco came to town.
1: Yes, well, you know, and that's what you know. That's what happens is is that once the creative process starts going, you know, you you have no control over that, and so you start saying. So then, thematic things start coming to you, and what you think is funny, all of a sudden, it takes an exit off exit 44, and you're into this intense serious parchment farm slow you know dead man walking blue song and you're going where the hell did this come from and you go it doesn't matter where it came from it's here deal with it write it record it put it on the record you know and again i go back to the song it hurts me too nothing satirical about that nothing funny about that it's about the pain of a guy saying hey talking to a woman he he he's really fond of saying, hey, I'm telling you, the guy you're with, he does not have your best interests, And it hurts me. It hurts me to see you with him. And I want you with me. And that pain is so real and so deep that, you know, that the comedia is out the window right now. Now we're into the two sides of 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 the of the of the of the mask, the comedy and the tragedy. So tragedy will, when you're, when you're writing comedy as intense as somebody like me or you know any, any comedic writer, the tragedy is going to rear its face and you have to address that, not only address it, you have to embrace it and you have to honor it just like you do the, 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 the satirical. Because the definition of satire is the express words are not the meaning intended. And it's all based on how does this make me feel? How does this make me feel? And start, when you start pulling the layers off the onion, you go, this isn't funny. <laughs> it's funny this is this is tragic, but that's that's what's been put in front of me and that's what I deal with at that moment and I have to write it and I have
0: to record it. Is there a line you would not cross? you
1: know um you know I remember at second city
0: um
1: there was a there was we were improvising you know and something came out and it wasn't me uh, but somebody in the ensemble said something and the director. Uh, stopped us. And he said, you know, uh, and he said, what, did, what, what was that about? And Somebody said, I don't know, it's funny. And he said, and I'll never forget this quote, he said, there's a thin line between mean and funny. You don't you don't want to cross that line, because it, that, that you just cheapen the comedia." And I try to wear, I was also taught, try to wear the target on your own back. When I'm about to attack somebody else about what they do, I try to say, now where do I do that in my life? And right from there, because now it's become more identifiable for everybody else. And we're not just pointing fingers, we're owning our own part in this. And then how I can change that as a roadmap from maybe where you could change that, or we can all change that. I like cleavage. We can all live in perfect harmony. We can all be bosom buddies and, and share a split view. I support cleavage and I hope you I mean it's that kind of a thing. Yeah. So um, I, I don't like memes. You know, I, I that's that's the line I try to I, I, I don't I don't cross. Yeah. And a lot of and a lot of comedians do cross that line. And you know, we were taught to see that and stay away from it. That's for amateurs. That's yeah. amateur humor.
0: You've just got this album out now, Bad News Rising. You've already looking towards the next one. What about touring? Yes. Well, that's
1: exactly what I'm at right now with, uh, you know, with Intrepid Artists is, is looking at that and starting to, to book dates. Uh, I'm having my first show this Saturday uh, up in uh, at uh, Knickerbockers up at uh, Westerly, Rhode Island, which is a, one of the great blues clubs. That's where, you know, that's where the Thunderbirds and Room Full of Blues got their start. That's where they, you know, they took all that Austin, that Texas blues sound up to New England. And that's where it really got cultivated. And Kim Wilson, anybody will tell you that. That, that was their... That was the place where they really um, uh, got their feet wet and really uh, become a tour de force. And then I'm at um, in New Haven, Cafe Nine, another great uh, great club, and then uh, the Turning Point, New York, another great club. So it's all starting. Uh, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go out till uh, COVID was at a no, a no mask um, kind of level. I, I, I didn't think it was safe. I didn't think it was safe for me. I didn't think it's safe for musicians and i didn't think it's safe for the audience so i just didn't i didn't i didn't perform mm. and um and now now it's time and what's great is i have you know i i have a i finally have the show i want or the beginning of the show i want you know because before it was here's a song by holland wolf called killing floor this is about when his wife found a a phone number of another woman in his pocket and she shot him in the butt you know and okay, that's great. But that's, that's not about me. That's about Holland Wolf. And so now I have songs, you know, Coco, just like you said, where did Coco C- Taylor come from? Where did this come from? And as a result, the audience gets to have a more personal relationship with me and a more intimate relationship. And so I have these, you know, these 10 songs and, uh, uh, and, and obviously I have to do some covers around it, but with the next album, you know, the whole, the whole show will be all originals and, uh, that's the goal and that's what uh, you know I'm looking forward to and Tom has done a great job of providing a sonic that is you know you know when you got a guy who's a three time you know buddy guy Grammy award winning producer I'm on the right track you yeah. know,
0: sonically well we were saying earlier that the Hokum style isn't well recognized in this country for want of a better right. phrase would you consider touring the UK I- I'd leave tonight if I could.
1: Uh, you know, because what my experience has, has been is that Europe understands this much better than America. America's like, what do you mean? It's funny and it's blue. Europe and England, and I, they're like, yeah, of course, man. You know, we get it. So I'm dying to. I know, my friend Kaz Hawkins and I talk about it all the time. And uh, I am I'm ready to go. I'm I'm ready to get on a plane tonight and get over there, you <laughs> yes. know. And I have some good friends over there, musicians Elliot Randall. Um, you know, you know, I got some great friends over there that are world class players, and I'd love to I'd love to get on stage with them, you
0: know. Excellent stuff. Well, thank you yeah. for taking the time out to do this. It's been an absolute joy. I wish you all the best for the future.